my god, it's too much. <laughs> the wolf one? Yeah. Okay, wait. Wait. Welcome to Cinemad. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you for being on the podcast. Goddamn pleasure to be here. <laughs> so the weird thing is that we were talking about the other night when you were showing your films is, so we've known each other 10 years, but it's one of those things where I uh, email and I've seen, actually I, I looked through your film list, I have seen about half of your films because you made so goddamn many. But anyway, but I've seen a lot of your films over a decade, and it's, so it's that just that vibe of, oh yeah, I know that person, but you never meet anyone in person, right? And so, so it's great to meet you, and it's I I like that whole vibe that you do make the kind of films where people feel like they know you because of the films, right? Is that ever the intent, or that just sort of what you do? That just happens, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had people say because like. Two of my films I narrate through, The Crow Dog and Nine is a Secret, and they're like kind of freaked out when they meet me, and then they like hear my voice, and it's like, I feel like I already know you, because I've heard you talking in that film. <laughs> and are you thinking, of, I mean, how did you find that kind of, did you see other diary work, or were you just like, this is the kind of film I want to make? It was just, uh, well, the first one, Crow Dog, was, uh, it was, there was a one-night show that my friend organized, I think it was a map show that night. And all these different people. Miranda July was actually there. It was in Portland, mm-hmm. and um, and I was painting houses that day. And I got off, and I showed up, and I was just showed showed the Super Eight footage that I had shot when I was hitchhiking in the early eighties. Uh-huh. And uh, somebody gave me a microphone, and I just uh, I just you know ad libbed while the film was going, told the story, and then I knew somebody was documenting the night, and I was like, Hey, did you video that? Because I'm going to transcribe it and then and then record the audio and put it on the film and make a film. Sure, that's how it started. <laughs> but I've always, I, when I was a little kid, I remember I was sitting in my bedroom looking in the mirror, talking into like one of those rectangular uh, tape recorders with a microphone, reading Charlotte's Web, and my sister came in and busted me, and she gave me so much <laughs> shit. I like I like uh, I like telling stories, talking into microphones. But even that, why would you be? Why would that something you'd be embarrassed by? Just because your sister's beating you up, or something? Probably because I was looking in the mirror at myself. That was probably <laughs> the most embarrassing thing. <laughs> there was that sort. It's that sort of thing with uh, the comedy album, and then I had a lot of comic book albums, and that idea of that's when you start figuring out formats as a kid. You know, because there's like, oh, there's pictures, and then there's audio, and yeah. it's scratchy, and I got to flip the record. It makes you be like a participant mm-hmm. a little bit. But did you see like any avant-garde films growing up, or is it just, or is it way more natural than that? Um, I saw, well, um, I took like three film production classes at Columbia College in Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, no, I didn't see any avant-garde. Oh, maybe they showed me... Maya Darren, because yeah, they were always like, you should go to the Art Institute. And I was like, I don't want to go to the Art Institute. <laughs> so it was more um, like a production class and you were making Yeah, yeah, it was like stuff. Film, 16 millimeter tech one, tech two, and sound design and optical printing. That's all I took, and then I left. And yeah. and I was like, I'm not taking any tests. You can give me an A or an F. I'm not here to get a degree. I just want to learn some shit and get out. But, um, yeah. and then there was a experimental film group showing films at Randolph Street Gallery in Chicago, so mm-hmm. I remember seeing Peter Kubalko's work, and yeah, a bunch of different people's work then. But it, that was, um, uh, I think it was just in me, because mm-hmm. I was writing before that a lot, constantly, and mm-hmm. it was more um, like 
the type of writing, like language writing, which I didn't even know existed. Or, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was just my style was more choppy, experimental. Somehow, in were, my blood. Were you doing zines then, or just sort of no, writing? No, never did your, a zine. Yeah, just, just writing. Just writing, and yeah, it. and keeping right. it. I, later on, I published stuff a lot, but then um, I went back to film. Right. And so you were born in Chicago and grew up there. Yeah. And then did you feel like you were part of a scene, or you were just like a kid doing stuff? I was just a kid doing stuff. Yeah. Um, I didn't really show stuff until Matt McCormick tapped me on the shoulder in Portland, Oregon. Like mm-hmm. I was making stuff, but it was all like those films I made when I was hitchhiking or something. It was more like writing in your journal or something. And they were, I don't know why I was doing it. It was just this need to document stuff and uh, didn't start showing stuff. I mean, I probably mm-hmm. showed Toxic Shock at some, you know, school screening or something, but I didn't mm-hmm. submit stuff to any shows until uh, Portland, Oregon. How did you find your way to Portland? Um, well, I guess first not, I was there. not so literally. but <laughs> I was hitchhiking around, and I, and I stayed there for like two months in the early 80s, got a job. Mm-hmm. But I didn't find the cool people, and I was like, this town is really boring. And I went to Chicago then. And then uh, I got married for a while, and I was in Knoxville, Tennessee for three years while my husband went through graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I hated it there so much. So it was my decision on where to move to. And uh, we left... Knoxville with two little kids and two dogs in a Corona station wagon. We drove around for like a month and a half trying to figure out where to be. Wow. And then I blew a stop sign in Portland, Oregon. And we didn't have insurance because we learned how to drive in Tennessee and they didn't make you get insurance there. And so we didn't know you're <laughs> supposed to have car insurance. Wow. And then even though we didn't have to stay, I was just like, why don't we stay here and I'll deal with this. And I'm so happy that I blew that stop sign because Portland's only gotten better and better and better. That's crazy. <clears throat> yeah, I feel really lucky to be in Portland, Oregon. So you're saying the cops made you stay? Yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> and that wait, what was year? What year was that? That was '89. Okay, and was that sort of? I mean, we know what it is now, which is sort of like a cut. I mean, just to be super cliche, like a cousin to Austin, where it's a medium-sized town with a lot of creative people. Yeah, but there's actually like an outlet for it right yeah it wasn't like that it was uh, much smaller and you mm-hmm. were lucky if one cool thing was going on maybe every oh, really? two weeks mm-hmm. and if you saw somebody riding a bike down the street you probably knew who that person was wow and uh, it's super exploded now there's so many good things going on in that town there's a lot more bikes a lot more bikes wow. you don't know the people <laughs> <laughs> but there's probably someone filming them as they yeah. Uh, yeah. ride by that's crazy. And then, um, so the marriage didn't... It was funny because when we got together, uh-huh. I was like, hey, check this out. There was this big article in the New York Times with some study about how, uh, a huge percentage of spouses who support their husbands or wives when they go through graduate school get dumped when the person graduates. And then it totally, like, we broke up right after he graduated. Wow. And uh, after- But it was an awesome thing. It was like, uh-huh. I'm really happy I was with that guy. We made incredible children. Oh, and wow. uh, did a good job raising them, not living together. Oh, really? Really happy I had kids with that man. Oh, that's good. That is that is an unusual thing to hear in today's world. <laughs> <laughs> and did you guys, you both stayed, everybody's still in Portland then? 
Yeah. Their kids are still there. Yeah. My son is actually in San Diego right now, um, uh-huh. killing some time with his girlfriend until he starts medical school in two months. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it is crazy. I can't believe I'm going to have a son that's going to be a doctor. That is, that's probably pretty good. Yeah, he had a girlfriend for a while that was uh, like going to go to Pratt and was interested in photography. And he was like, oh, man, I would never, ever become an artist after watching my mother's life. Really? <laughs> so now he's going to be a doctor. <laughs> Take care of me, maybe. This is, uh, but this is, so this is interesting just because Portland, so many people move there because it's Portland. So did you actually see things grow how does this stuff sort of happen in a town and a town that becomes like very desirable and I and tons of good people and creative people are working there yeah I mean were people drawn by the environment or is it just incredibly natural one person meets another person and you hear about something cool and you sort of go to it well I I was uh, lucky because uh, I got hired at Powell's Books which is kind of the cream of the crop of the shit jobs I think <laughs> and uh Immediately, there were like 250 employees at the pals I was working at that were like super brilliant and cool. And I just like right away from moving there that second time had like an incredible group of people that I knew. Mm-hmm. And even though it was pretty small still in that town, but there was a woman I met there. I moved into this slum apartment that was filled with shit and got rid of everything except for this one silkscreen T-shirt that said Psychic Dominance on it. And all the time, whenever I'd wear it, people would walk by and go, that's a cool shirt, and I'd be like, thanks. And one time I was in piles, and this woman walked by, and she was like, that's a cool shirt. And I was like, thanks. And I was like, wait a minute, what did you say? And she said, I made that shirt. And uh, (laughs) she turned out to be this incredible lady, Kathy Malloy, who was doing a zine. Or it was a newspaper that came out four times a year called Snipe Hunt. And it was mainly uh, about music culture, but then she'd like I was writing an article for it, and she just tapped different people's shoulders and like, hey, you want to do cartoons for it or whatever? And she created this big community, mm-hmm. and she didn't drive, so then I drive her up and down the coast. We delivered it down to San Francisco, up to Vancouver, Canada, and um, she really exploded my world into meeting a lot more creative people. Like John Raymond was involved with mm-hmm. Snipe Hunt back at that time, and. Uh, yeah, and Miranda July. There were mm-hmm. just beginnings, groups of people getting together and, and shows starting to happen. That's fun, and just like and just over. Then all of a sudden, you turn around and you're like, wait a minute, this is there's a lot of shit going on. Yeah, because I lived in Tucson for a long time, and it's a great city, and there's a lot of creative people, but most people would end up leaving mm-hmm. to Austin or portland and then you just hear about what's going on there and eventually like well i need a better job than this so you go somewhere else right right you know but portland's at least held up yeah except there are no jobs in portland and a lot of like one of my friends i'm going to see later today moved here a couple months ago yeah it's sad because uh like a lot of my friends now are they're they're most of my friends that i hang out with are younger than me because my friends that are my age are more I don't know, stay at home and paint in their studios all day and don't go out. And I go out right. to a lot of music shows and have a lot of musician friends, and they're mm-hmm. more in their 30s and uh, living in group houses and getting too old to do that. And, and they're like, I can't live here anymore. It's really sad. <laughs> yeah. How many roommates can you have right. after 30 <laughs> even? And it's, it's a, and, it, and hopefully people learn that it's like that's, it's just this weird byproduct of age not being creative. Yeah. Because and some of course sometimes like you know the people that you work with are um, if you're closer to them physically things will happen more but sooner or later like if you're not the impetus for 
stuff moving forward is not going to happen. Right. So. There's so many people making stuff happen in that town. Right. And so you met Matt McCormick early? Yeah, yeah. He found me and a bunch of other people that none of us, I don't think, knew each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he started his peripheral produce shows and uh, had screening. And, uh, and then, like, Two months later, he's like, I'm going to have another screening. You're going to have something in it? And I'd be like, yeah. I think I have the record for being in every, not every, but more peripheral produce shows than anybody. And for a while, it was every show. I would just be like, yeah, I'll have something in your screening. And (laughs) it was great. Matt helped me so much because then he put out the video compilations of my work. Mm -hmm. And uh, people knew then who the hell I was. Right. <laughs> right, because I think he had done that um, when I figured out what film... I started working for film festivals in 93 and then found out what he was doing about, mm-hmm. like, 2000, and that's how I found your work. Is that a... How do you not stay frustrated? Um, how do you not get frustrated? To keep many things going so something's always sort of moving forward? Yeah, and and I'm, I'm satisfied um, with... Long. I mean, obviously, I've been working on that wolf film for so many years that oh, right. I can go a long time without finishing something and still be like, I'm really happy I didn't finish that film. That I didn't in one year or whatever. The film's going to be so much better because I didn't have the money to finish it all these years. Mm-hmm. I just keep making more connections, and the story just keeps deeper and deeper. But in the meantime, I'm like making these shorter things and or installations or mm-hmm. um, curating stuff, and it's all satisfying me right have you been putting on shows besides yourself i mean you've obviously yeah i'm i'm um i've curated some shows of other people's work so right now Mm -hmm. i'm putting together a show of portland makers to bring to france in april because the pompidou in paris and in metz and the gaite lyrique are um, doing a profile in portland which is mainly about musicians. But b- since I've um, collaborated with a lot of Portland musicians, mm-hmm. I'm going to go over there, too, and do some um, projections with the musicians playing live to it. And then, as well, I'm, I'm going to curate a show of, of Portland stuff. That's great. Portland to Paris. Yeah. <clears throat> have you seen that show, Portlandia? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Portlandia. I have not seen it. Everybody's down here is talking about it and and liking it how do, how do you feel about it i um i've seen well i don't i've seen only parts of it like online and uh some of them are really funny mm-hmm. i think i really like i was talking to somebody in chicago who i hadn't talked to probably in 15 years two weeks ago and he was like yeah yeah we watched that show portlandia man we love that show and, and I'm like yeah it's really like that here and he's like what how can you live there <laughs> it's like, but it is like I'll say things come out of my mouth and I'll be like oh my god I'm such a Portland cliche it's like I think it's pretty pretty right on at least the ones I've seen it's it's pretty funny and true and Portland people are in it so right yeah that at least probably helps a little bit of the authenticity um, how did you meet uh, Bill Daniel? You guys did a great long road trip. Was it just once or more than once? I know the Lucky Bum tour. Um, we went on another uh, – the Lucky Bum tour was a lot of shows over, I think, two different – or maybe even three different trips we went out. The longest one being nine weeks with a show every single day except for one wow. night. And wow. that, that on, that tri- on that tour, 
We were also making a new video installation about truck driver culture and shooting and recording CB chatter during the day as we were driving to the next show to set up. But I met Bill. He came to town. Mm-hmm. He actually wanted to – he invited me to some show. He was doing a show, but I had a super migraine and I couldn't go. And then he was coming back to town and somebody I knew knew them. And uh, I was like, what's this Bill Daniel like? And she was like, he's a punk rock cowboy. And I was like, oh, i got to meet this dude. And uh, so then he moved to town, and um, we just hit it off and started working together on each other's things and helping each other mm-hmm. um, and doing things together. And um, went on tour. I loved, I loved working with Bill. I always felt like uh, kind of the visual uh, metaphor would be uh, water going over like a... Miller's wheel or something that it was just like so fast our ideas and production going I think neither of us had been that production before or after our time together that we just really got a lot of shit done Wow! and I loved being with him while he was finishing Bozo Texino too and watching that baby get Born. Right. It's a documentary about hobo train graffiti. And, uh, that he worked on for like 16 years. For a long time. And then that was being finished. Like he already had the footage and he was, was he editing? He still shot some more. Shots of finally, right. Yeah. And yeah, he didn't start editing until probably he'd been in Portland for, I think, three years by that time that he was like, all right, I'm going to make it. <laughs> so it was actually being on the road even just like that a, a kind of inspiration just to get stuff done? Is it, does it have something to do with being detached from a lot of um, or a responsibility, I guess? <laughs> or it's just like so exciting because people are seeing your work, so it makes you want to like do something else? Yeah, it's, it's so awesome to get out and uh, show your work, especially like to not just go to uh, film centers or – Schools right. or art places, but go to the stinky cat pee basement and, uh, and yeah. How would you find the places? Oh, that's uh, that's that's pin the calendar on the map where you <laughs> you uh, you've got your show here, and you've got your show there, but it's going to take two days to get there. So you're like, what town is in between? And then um, we'd Google like it, first we'd look if there was a film place or an art center, and if not, we'd just Google a cafe in some little podunk town and call them up and say, "Hey, we're coming through town. We've got all the equipment we need. Can we set up in your cafe, or is there some place you think we should do a film show?" Right. And uh, so, it kind of created spaces as well as um, yeah. Somebody contacted me right now. They were going to make a uh-huh. database of of cool places to go on tour for filmmakers. I was like, right on. That would be so useful yeah. to have because we were like blazing, creating new spots to go. It's a, it's a weird thing where it's just like, as long as a person is there, that for the, the few <laughs> places, the places that I know because I, I deal with the film festivals and and like regular art houses, but then I'll try to like deal with micro cinemas and basements as well, but just to show films and to curate stuff. And it almost always depends if there's a good, strong person there, the show will happen. Yeah. And then there's those few towns where it's like, where is the awesome person yeah. in, you know, I won't name. And town. even, <laughs> you know. And even but. if just one person comes to the show or two people, you could be like super depressed financially, but you right. could have like this great connection of inspiration for this person in the middle of nowhere. I remember this one show in Boise, Idaho, which was a cat pee stinky basement. And the, I think the, the people, the couple that lived there, just had a huge fight right before we arrived and showed up to set up. But um, this lady came up to me after watching Olympia, which was this film I made about this home birth. 
And uh, she was like, this is the first time I left my house in 18 months since the baby was born without my baby. And uh, and I had no idea that a birth could be like that. Let like people could be touching you and loving you because nobody touched me during my birth. And and I like was so happy wow. that I showed this lady that like yeah, it's good to make those connections. And yeah. plus, yeah, you know, so much of filmmaking is either solo or you're just with one, your sound person or something. And then you're like mm-hmm. editing alone, 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 and. Uh, it's so great to go out and actually have Q and A's and meet people, yeah. and get feedback. Yeah, good and bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you like one kind of place over another, or is it all like like a bar is fine and a cafe is fine and a basement's fine? Yeah, I think they're all fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like them all as right. long as the projection looks good and the sounds good. <laughs> well, and you guys had and you had everything, right? Yeah. Projector sound. Yeah, at one point on the Heart, Heart Attack Island tour, I think we had five video projectors because um, I was doing wow. a three projection piece and mm-hmm. Bill was had two projectors on the side of the sail van projecting on the sails on top of his van. And, right. and then we had a backup projector. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and six, 16 and video. No, on those tours. Those were well, video. No, wait, did Bill have any 16? No, I think it was all video. At that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I guess I'd rather be out in more fringy places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and driving like a like a town that usually doesn't get that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's always wherever there's a fucked up kid, you're gonna have right. a good show. Or even like the show a couple of nights ago at the Museum of Jurassic Technology here yeah. in LA. What a goddamn honor to have yeah. a show there. Thank you, Mark Toscano, for setting it up. It was, like, so happy. And it was nice yeah. to hear also from people how well my work fit with that museum. And, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite places that I've ever shown work at, for sure. Yeah, it was nice to see the old and the new with that, too. It's just a nice vibe. Because um, I hadn't seen the first portrait. Mm-hmm. I had seen Trojan, but that second one. But what are the three, and what is Cascadia? Cascadia Terminal is or well, no, it, there's a website to. Oh, to Cascadia! To Cascadia is a Republic of Cascadia. The Republic of Cascadia is a <laughs> part of California, isn't it? Northern California, up all the way to Alaska, uh-huh. and it even goes far, far inland, like to eastern Washington, mm-hmm. and I don't know if Idaho's included in it, but like. I always thought of Cascadia more of the the forests and the wetlands, but it includes the mm-hmm. deserts. And uh, there was this idea, I think it was an Ecotopia book in the 70s, mm-hmm. that, that this area could secede from the U.S. And that would be great if it did, I think, still. <laughs> a lot of people, there's a, there's a, at the Occupy movement in um, Portland, right. there were a lot of people with the flying the Cascadia flag. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the U.S. is And so the portraits are, are this, okay, yeah. this thing that's... Uh, I'm just shooting stuff that I mm-hmm. find interesting in that region, uh, either histories or places or stories I've heard, and then having scores by Northwest musicians. And they're mm-hmm. all, I think, going to be shot on film, but finished on video. Just because like, some of them were shot mm-hmm. on 35. Two of them were shot on 35. And oh, like, wow. if I go to some little podunk, you know, shithole to do a show. They're not going to have a 35 projector. Right. So I finished them all on video. And eventually, 
Like, there'll be at least an hour and a half long show of them together. Right now, there's uh, 25 minutes of them, I think. And I have. Mm-hmm. There's three four films, more right? Ideas, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, at least. And, and one of them, like the last one, the third, I didn't even know that that was going to be a portrait film. But then I made it, and I was like, well, this is, of course, a portrait film that goes in the series. But I could see doing it for the rest of my life, just making these portraits and commissioning musicians. Yeah. And I'm so lucky to be in Portland where all these incredible musicians are. And most of them, all but one that I've asked to compose, have never composed for films before. They're more oh, just wow. in bands. And, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm so happy with... It's really easy. It's kind of like <laughs> embarrassing to admit uh, just how easy it is. But I'll just, to make the film, yeah, I'll just you know well, come up with it, like figure out who the musician should be, right. and then ask them, and they always say yes. And then right. <laughs> I edit the picture, which sometimes is hard. Like Trojan was the hardest film I ever edited. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to edit the picture, but I edit it with no sound at all, and then I just give the finished picture to the musicians, and oh, they cool. score it. And so far, I've always been like, that's awesome. And, you know, it's done. Right. Yeah. Well, the hard part is to give yourself some credit. The hard part is, like, not just, I mean, you have the theme. You have, like, really great imagery. Like, because lots of people shoot bridges and buildings and landscapes, and it just looks like, you know, a Facebook photo that somebody <laughs> took in a second. <clears throat> Where you actually put some thought into it, and mm-hmm. you actually—it feels like you've spent time with each place. Mm-hmm. Did you? Is it? Uh, are they places that you just came across, or were you actually looking for stuff and sort of found them? Uh, the first one was a fluke where I borrowed some money from a friend, Ian Bachi, mm-hmm. and and I went to pay her back, and she was like, "Oh, honey, you just keep that money, and next time you're up in Vancouver, Canada, why don't you make a little film about this grain elevator I used to hang out?" when I was a teenager and have sex and get high and so I, I shot it with my Bolex and then I just sat around for a while and hand processed it mm-hmm. and uh, I think it sat around for like two years uh, then wow. and and then I met Tara Jane um, O'Neill and heard her music and asked her to score it and then I gave it to Diane and I just thought it was going to be you know Diane's movie for her and right. other people saw it and then they they really liked it which was very surprising to me because I just thought <laughs> it was this personal place for this person and nobody would like it then I won some awards at festivals because then I was like oh well if people like it I should show it right and that's how it started so uh-huh. it was like not an idea like I'm going to do this portrait series at all and then Trojan um I wanted to document. This is a nuclear cooling tower. It was like 20 miles north of Portland. That um, before it was built, there was huge opposition to it, and while it was operating, there was huge opposition mm-hmm. to it. Twice it was on the ballot measures to shut it down, and um, and finally it it got shut down, and um, it was not operating for I think at least eight years, mm-hmm. but it was standing there, and you could see it on I five when you drove up to Seattle a huge thing in the landscape um, and then I, I read that it was going to be blown up and I knew I was going to really miss it and I forgot how much <laughs> I hated it because it hadn't been operating even though all the nuclear waste is still sitting there in a pool I should right. still hate it but I was like I'm really going to miss that nuclear cooling tower <laughs> and so it started just as a from to, to document it 
this this um, shape in the landscape that I knew very well because I was going to miss it. Yeah. And only when I started making it did I remember, oh, yeah, I used to hate this place. <laughs> and then the next one is also about something disappearing, which is about um, a black-owned record store mm-hmm. in Portland, Oregon, that got demolished uh, maybe it's two and a half or three years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, people ask me, you know, about that, that I'm making these films about things disappearing. And some of the subjects for the portraits in my head that I want to make in the future are also about things that I think are going to be either shut down because of animal rights groups or uh-huh. have been um, disappeared but have come back. But I didn't start out. It's just uh, an organic process that that's happened to bring me to that. And I don't think yeah. there's any... Like, I don't think, oh, I can only make things about things that are disappearing at all. Right. But so far, that's what's been happening. <laughs> <laughs> Time goes on, and of course, that's that that dichotomy of like that the horrible nuclear waste inside something that is a pretty shape, and you know, I mean, I have to think it's been so ingrained in our lifetime because it's Three Mile Island when we were yeah, kids. Yeah. So, like, that's the only thing I know about it. But if I was wondering, like, well, I probably would think it's just a nice, cool looking wall if it was just steam, right? And nothing right, else right. was there. Like, I'd probably like, oh, pretty. I think there's one in Washington State that's shut down that is a mm-hmm. basketball court inside. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, that's useful too. Or put some grain in it or something. Yeah. You know, or save some water, rain. Rain gardening. I saw uh, this film when yeah. I was in Vienna two years ago. I would love to track it down. I, I, I can't find out who made it. And it was mm-hmm. shot at Chernobyl. And there are these two people wearing oh, wow. uh, like protective suits. And the soundtrack is, is a Geiger counter. And they're going around mm-hmm. walking through all this abandoned Chernobyl landscape. And then every now and then they stop and they simulate having sex in different positions. <laughs> and then the Geiger counter is like going off more or whatever. <laughs> But they're really there. It's they're like really no there. Joke. Yeah, they're really there. Oh wow! In these silver shiny suits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, humans are so complicated. It's a, it's a mess. Um, did, how did you like that? Uh, uh, the act of hand processing. Hand processing. Yeah. Uh, I liked it. It was just like spaghetti style in a martini shaker, and. Uh, well, you actually using a literal literal martini shaker. Yes. And putting the solution just in there. Jammed it in yeah. there and threw some different colored dyes in, in. And I think we did two different rolls. And uh, was that like pure experimentation, or you're broke, or probably both? Both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it was more broke at the time. Yeah, it was more broke. But I love. Yeah, I loved it. I loved, yeah. And then I slowed it down mm-hmm. in the computer as well so that you really see all the shapes going yeah. by instead of quickly. Because it's sort of stuck together when you're pulling it yeah, apart. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. That's the pro- my only problem, I don't know how you feel about the experimental term as far as a film term. I get it, and, and but it's such an outsider term. Except with hand processing, mm-hmm. but it still sort of belittles it where it's, you know, it's the fun of gambling. Right. Like, you don't want to lose this image. Yeah. Like, at least it's of a building, you could probably go get it again. But it's like you don't want to lose this image, but you do want to take a chance. Yeah. But that's with any roll of film, I think. You don't yeah, know that's true too. if it's going to turn that's out. True. Right. Which is, like, so exciting, I think. And yeah. You're still, are you know, pins and needles wondering right. when it comes back from the lab what is it going to look like I, that when I was working on uh, the Land Piranhas the Wolf film 
I had all the 16 millimeter film that I shot and I never could look at. I didn't want to, I, I just had the negative and, uh, mm-hmm. and the lab would just tell me, oh, it looks good. And I had no idea <laughs> if it really looked good or if it was in focus or what. And uh, right. finally, this really great um, transfer post house in Portland that doesn't exist anymore. Um, right before they closed, the guy was like, give me all your footage. I'm going to transfer it for you. Oh, wow. and, and I was like, oh, my God, it does look good. <laughs> Thank God it looks good. <laughs> and that was all, was it all 16 then? But I just had trust that, that it did yeah. look good. Yeah, it was all six, it's all 16. Yeah. And that was, how, so how long have been, is this for the project you're doing now? The Wolf yeah. Project? Yeah. I guess, how did you start with The Wolves? How did I start with The Wolves? Um, this film got started because uh, a wolf came into Oregon in 98 from Idaho. Mm-hmm. And um, mistakenly, uh, the feds were like, oh, we should bring that wolf back to Idaho. But that really wasn't what should have happened. It should have just been able to stay in Oregon. But so it was caught mm-hmm. and uh-huh. flown back to Idaho. But then these meetings started. It was the first wolf meeting in Oregon. Right. Although Oregon actually was created um, politically because of anti-wolf um, like it came together as a state because people coming together to say, you know, we don't we don't want wolves and we want to start some bounty and kill them all. And, and oh, I didn't know that. That was part of Oregon's creation. So it was but, like legal to get to kill the wolves. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and and so I went to this meeting and there were these wolf mm-hmm. biologists there. And when I was a kid, I'd uh, ride my in Chicago, ride my bike five miles to to get to high school, and mm-hmm. I'd stop at the the zoo was on the way. It was free. And the farm and the zoo and the regular zoo and I'd get stoned and decide if I was going to go to school or not. <laughs> and often I would not. And I'd just go sit in front of this concrete box that had seven wolves in it at the zoo and sit there for like a couple hours and write in my journal and just watch them. And I wanted to be a wolf biologist, but I hated school, so I was like, I'm not going to do that. And uh, huh. and then and then being around these wolf biologists, I was super on fire, excited and happy. And uh, I actually thought about going to school for like two hours and was like. Yeah, you would have had to... schools and stuff going, I'm going to do it. And then I was like, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm going to make a film and just hang out with these guys. <laughs> and which has been great to get to meet all these wolf biologists that I'd read their work over the years and uh, share my work with them and become friends with them. Mm-hmm. I really wish I lived closer to wolf biologists. <laughs> no. I think they're my favorite people. So, so that one wolf went back to Idaho. Yeah. Just kind of... And then Oregon came up with this plan uh, proactively, uh-huh. like with uh, ranchers and environmentalists and whoever, you know, they go to all these meetings and figure out how, what they were going to do. And they were going to have four. They want four breeding pairs in the northeast and four breeding pairs in the southwest. And then they could delist mm-hmm. them and from being endangered, and you could just treat them like any game animal. Right. And now, like, yeah, this wolf came into California from Oregon first time in 60 years and everywhere it just continues wherever they go uh it's going to be the same thing that happened in 98 and um where the state talks about when they came in yeah 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 when people freak out about the animal right yeah (laughs) and what so what do you usually do when you're shooting because some of the stuff, well, one of the main thing we saw was from an installation that was found footage, but then you have a bunch of footage as well. Yeah, I have a bunch of footage. No, I uh-huh. don't have any footage of wolves. At one point, I was thinking of having no wolves at all in the movie. Right. But, um, but luckily, I know some great cinematographer who lives above Yellowstone has let me use mm-hmm. 
incredible footage, Bob Landis, um, that he shoots. He's a nature guy? Yeah, he records hmm. audio and um, shoots not just wolves, but otters and also he's done some National Geographic films but he's, he's uh-huh. more like stock shoots things and sells things right. to people and uh, um, what was the question? So you've decided to use wolves now you haven't been shooting wolves yeah yeah I've decided to use wolves I have more right. shooting um, landscape and more interviews interviews with people although this is not going to be a talking heads type documentary right. Um yeah, and then um, also like there'll be this whole section um, uh-huh. with s- s- images, uh, still images of the wolf used in cartoons, editorial cartoons, or art as you know portrayed as a Nazi, or all these uh-huh. different ways that the wolf is has been portrayed through the ages. Yeah, it's gotten a bad rap. <laughs> Through, yeah. through wartime, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the earliest? Have you found like a really early image, like early cartoon? I mean, I, 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 know, this World woman II, from the Humane Society of the United States. I saw a slideshow that was an hour long uh-huh. um, that she did. That she's been collecting all these images. I don't remember what wow. the first, the earliest one she had was, but it kind of blew my mind how many images there were that she had collected. Wow! All portraying it in this horrible way. Always negative. Yeah. Wolf in sheep's clothing. Or since uh, at least cartoons were started, <laughs> that's funny. So it's that, well, that's but working on the movie. Like, uh-huh. like I was attracted to it because somehow I'm attracted to the animal, or I've always liked canines. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but it's really not about the wolf at all. It's about land management and food production and even immigration um, issues. So right, I yeah, and and gun rights. It's it's about all this other stuff that people somehow attached to the the wolf i think right and what the uh it'll be like a feature documentary yeah. then that'll be the final form yeah i think so right well it's interesting because i've it, made yeah. these three pieces now the first right. one a refrigerator installation where i had 10 fridges in a row with footage inside mm-hmm. and uh nine monitors with chases and because nine times out of ten wolves don't catch what they go after and so mm-hmm. there was like incredible shots that Bob shot of um, wolves chasing animals and not getting them. And then one of them getting an elk calf and one fridge was just empty and it howled when you opened it up. And that showed in Portland uh-huh. and in Belgium and in the Exploratorium in San Francisco and in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And and then I made this three three projector piece, Hope and Pray, which wasn't just about wolves. It was about a lot of different animals in the landscape. Um, and... Uh, and then just the, the newer piece, Charismatic Megafauna, which feels really, um, I don't know, I've only shown it twice now, once with the musicians live and then the other night here with the recorded audio. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I feel about it. It really makes me feel horrible. Like like I went home that? after the show, both shows, just like uh-huh. with a pit in my chest, just like, because this piece is all about biologists um, uh-huh. getting the wolves in Canada and... Um, bringing them down to the U.S. to be released, and they're just, like, measured the hell out of and, like, hands pulling shit out of their assholes for samples and and measuring their vulvas and measuring their nipples and measuring their teeth and paw prints and hair collection and mange collection and and then, you know, holes punched in their ears with tags and electronic collars so we can know where they are. 
and it, and even though it's done in the name of greater good of like bringing um, this endangered species, helping them to go back to where they their their range mm-hmm. used to be, it's so twisted. Um, yeah, I don't I, I don't even know if that piece is like set or if it needs something else or if I can even show it again if I can handle it. <laughs> it really like. Well, it's so intense. It's effective me. because it's made by somebody who's not making a film. Right, it's the biologist's footage. Documentation, it's science. And and it's it was cool because I didn't know, I knew in general, because you're obsessed with wolves, what it was kind of about. But I didn't know like what the footage was going to be. And it was interesting to see because it's a hunt, although they're not killed. Uh, but it's still a hunt. So then you're like, all these things are going through your mind and like what's going to happen and there's just one moment because all those guys, whether they're scientists from the start or just scientists now, like they're burly dudes. Yeah. In the real middle of nowhere. <laughs> and yeah, they got a helicopter, but like they have their gloves off half the time, yeah. and they're like in this snow that's like six feet deep, and this incredible animal trying to catch it. And but when it finally gets to a point where they just pet it and yeah. they hug it, right? And then it's like, yeah, well. Okay, now I know what's going on, and this is more fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird because I was even while I was editing it, watching um, the footage where the biologists or the pilots are um, stroking the animal, and I'm thinking the animal's all doped up out of its mind, mm-hmm. and it's never been pet in its life. So is that a weird feeling to it, and does it make it feel like stressed out, where we think we're like making it feel better? And my mother saw it, and she was like, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it reminds them of when their mother was licking them with their tongue or something. And I was like, okay, I could maybe see that. (laughs) Maybe that makes me feel a little better. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, they do. And these guys are like that, the one guy you see the most in, he's like six foot five. Oh, my God. And, you know, they they have a hard time, like, moving these animals, and the snow is so deep. It's crazy. But no, it's up to his waist. Yeah. Right, yeah. And they're just like, it's that, you know, because the hunters that I do know all hunt for food, and they really respect the animal, and they really use all the meats. And I never went hunting. My dad's always like, do you want to go hunting? I'm like, not really. I didn't even want to go fishing. But uh, but he's like, well, this is how we're going to eat for six months. I'm like, all right, so now I feel bad. But I'm still like, I'll eat your food, but I'm not going to go kill it, <clears throat> which is like the story of Western civilization. So... But seeing these guys go and just that sort of like extreme love for the animals is what's going on. Right. Because if they don't, I mean, we're we're talking about just the lesser of two evils because somebody will kill all these animals. (laughs) And it's funny because some of these guys, like when the wolf reintroduction um, was being planned, there were Mm -hmm. like not this, like all these wolf biologists because there were no wolves here. And so they would like tap on the shoulder of the fish biologist and be like, hey, you're going to be in this wolf reintroduction project. And they didn't know anything about wolves. Or... Like Carter Niemeyer, who worked for Wildlife Services, which is which business is really killing thousands and thousands of coyotes and birds or whatever they're killing every year to make it easier for ranchers and farmers to grow their food. To go from somebody who's like trapping and killing animals mainly to having this intense love and respect for the animal is really interesting to watch right. people grow grow that through that thought process. Yeah, like what do you need to know about keeping it alive? Yeah. A fish has got to be easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> what um, Did you get to know these people that are actually in that film then? 
I know some of them. Yeah, when uh -huh. I see them on the screen, I'm just like, ah, oh, there's Joe. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know the pilots, but um, mm -hmm. a lot of those biologists I know. Right, and uh, and so that's just their life work. Now, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of them have retired, which is really awesome. Oh, wow. Because now they can really say what they want to say. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. About how things are being managed. Yeah. Right. So there's positives and negatives. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole, yeah, the whole, um, the wolf thing, like it was this big involved federal program, and now it's kind of disbanded, and it's more going to the states, and um, it's going to be gnarly forever. Mm -hmm. I think, and now I'm I'm making this piece right now about jellyfish. Oh, really? And uh, I went to uh, it's a video installation for mm -hmm. the Oregon Biennial, and uh, I I'm made this screen that's about a ten and a half feet in diameter at its widest point. Wow! And it's, so it's in the shape of a of a jellyfish, and it's suspended mm -hmm. in the room, hanging about three feet off the ground, with these tentacles coming off of it. And you'll have to duck under it and go mm -hmm. inside, and there'll be this like sea anemone shapes that you that are kind of comfy mm -hmm. that you can lie down on, and <laughs> and then stare at all these projections on the big mama jellyfish that you're within, wow. of different jellyfish that um, Eric Edwards shot. We went to the aquarium in Oregon, mm -hmm. and the jellyfish caretaker lady was um, helping us out and like holding these LED lights that changed colors and she was kind of wrangling the jellyfish with her hands or nets to go closer to our lens you do that? and uh, <laughs> yeah she just was like itchy she didn't you know I think oh. she's been so working with them for eight years now uh, that uh, their stings don't really bother her that much or maybe some people Jesus, they never tough. bother them yeah but it's interesting to like dive into this other animal now or uh, um mm -hmm. and and just i like yeah i like i and one of the portraits too is about these swifts in portland thousands and thousands of swifts come every year and is funnel it, into this bird? chimney yeah yeah disappear into the chimney <laughs> and one, uh wait, one chimney or a lot one chimney yeah really yeah <laughs> and it used to be like you know a few people would go there and now like uh-huh Probably at least a thousand people every night will go there for three weeks and watch them come at dusk and funnel into this chimney, and they all applaud. <laughs> and it's, at the end, it's turned into this big spectacle. Performance art. Yeah. What? Um, who owns the chimney? Uh, this elementary school. They actually decommissioned huh. the heater from going out of it and um, and braced awesome. it and made it super safe for the birds and and made a new heating system for their building. Right. Just so that the birds, because the birds used to go into snags, old, huge, dead trees, which don't exist anymore that much. Oh, wow. So now they're going into chimneys as they travel down to South America. That's trippy. What's that piece going to be called? That piece, I or don't know what it's going to be called. The jellyfish piece is called Medusa Smack. Um, <laughs> is that a lot of countries uh, uh -huh. actually use the word Medusa for jellyfish. And then I was thinking you're going to be lying there totally like immobile, blissed out, and kind of like Medusa turning you into stone. Right. And a smack is a term for a group of jellyfish, a large group is a smack. That's one of the terms. Oh, and then I thought it's like smack heroin as well, that you'll just be all tripped out. <laughs> awesome. Medusa smack. Is that only going to be And Tara me? Jane O'Neill is doing uh -huh. the score for that. And we're oh, cool. mixing in some sounds from... Uh, the Harry Bertoya's sound sculptures, which we got permission to use um, recordings from them. 
Oh, cool. Do jellyfish make any sound at all? Um, I that, I don't know. You'll be the only one to, only filmmaker that'll probably find out <laughs> within a reasonable amount of time. Is that only going to be an installation then? Um, or is it something that... Uh, well, I'm going to make it something... Um, we're going to do it in Paris because um, Tara will be there. So then mm -hmm. it won't be an installation. Um, and it might have um, two different shots at the beginning of it, um, I think, right. for the non-installation version of it. Oh, cool. And then the other thing you showed, is it Reichert or is it Richart? Richart. Richart. And basically the notion of the outsider artist, like crazy house, really amazing homemade stuff from trash and dumpsters. And, and that scene, that's not even the right word for it, the notion of an outsider artist has really sort of blown up in the last, whatever, 10 years, I guess. I mean, maybe longer, whenever Henry Darger stuff was yeah. discovered. Was that something you were just driving by and you saw it? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't I, like you were on the lookout for... No, I was given uh, Tim Cridland... What is that his name? Tim Grimm, the, the Torture King. He, he was in the Jim Rose Freak Show, a ride up to Seattle. Uh -huh. And he said, uh, hey, there's this uh, mural or a statue for one of the Wobblies who was murdered in Centralia. Let's, you know, get off here and look at it. Yeah. And we pulled off and drove by Richard's place, and we were both like, what the fuck is that? And we stopped and rang the bell, and Richard gave us a five-minute tour and then I knew Richard for 10 years by the time that film was made. Oh, wow. I had gone and taken my kids and friends and a lot of people up there and done workshops with them. And whenever, because my folks lived in Seattle or friends in Olympia, whenever I'd go, I'd always stop and see Richard. <coughs> and actually, he's not an outsider artist. He's educated. He knows about Mark Toby. And like you hear him, um, who does he say? Now I'm forgetting. Uh, but he knows. He, he knows. He's not like what you would call an outsider artist although everybody right. he's lumped in like in books about outsider artists and definitely when you look at his work you think there's an outsider artist but he's really right. not richard is actually uh taking apart the whole place now oh really yeah wow to he's keeping the basement else? going and the art making in the basement but no he's just taking like a pickup truck load at a time to the dump over and dismantling the entire wow. yard which is big because he has like five city lots <coughs> that he owns around the house like the house is on a lot and then there's right. like a lot of property wow, and so now you see all this grass appearing in wide open expanses <laughs> and you're like whoa this place is huge was it was there pressure from neighbors or I don't think so I think um, part of it might be different medication and part of it might be mm. him getting old and uh Maybe, you know, he'll die before his wife or doesn't want his wife and kids have to deal with taking it apart. Yeah. Or also just um, the feeling sometimes we get where we're just like, oh, my God, there's too much shit around and you got to get rid of it. <laughs> like, you just wake up and you're like, get the shit out of here. Even if it's art, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, now it's good that you made – it's doubly good that you made the film. Yeah. and that was entertaining, but um, – I had no idea to make that film at all. Like, Richard was just my friend, and I never thought about making a film. And then um, I was working on this stupid-ass TV show, Gary and Mike, mm -hmm. um, animated thing out of the Will Vinton Studios in Portland. And uh, I just started working there, and I met somebody, and they were like, I went to Columbia. And I was like, no way. I never met anybody who went to Columbia College. And he was like, there's four more people on this set. Uh -huh. So he took me around to introduce me to all these people, and then one of them was Don Smallman. <clears throat> right. She um, she was like, "Oh, you might know my husband, uh, 
Greg Snyder. And I was like, oh, yeah, he was my Tech 2 teacher. I said, he won't remember. But maybe he might remember. You know, tell him that Vanessa, who made Toxic Shock, says hello. Uh And she was like, Toxic Shock? That was his all-time favorite student film, and he showed that to every class. (laughs) (coughs) And then he, um, she turned out to be, she was really into outsider art. Mm -hmm. And she actually lived like a block away in Chicago where Henry Darger lived. Whoa. Around the same block even, I think. And uh, and then we came up with the idea together to make the film. And then Greg ed- ended up being the editor on it. He's an amazing editor. He right. just uh, co-edited How to Die in Oregon, oh, right. which yeah. is such a good movie. Yeah. So you have a DVD compilation coming out now. Yeah, yeah. It's called North, South, East, West, all over the map with Vanessa Rennick. Uh-huh. And... Uh, <laughs> Is it everything or a selection? No, no, it's a selection, but there's, there's going to be a lot of stuff on it. I was thinking, like, even the extra section will probably have as much stuff as the regular DVD itself. <laughs> I was like, why did I choose to put this in the extras and not in the main menu? It's hard to figure out. Like, what's an extra? Right. Um, and I wanted to put it out for a while, but I never could figure out the name of what it would be. Yeah. Which usually I'm really good at thinking up names for my work. And then I was at... <laughs> right. um, Bill Daniel was showing the, who is Bozo Texino at the Red Cat, and there was a Margaret Kilgallen show at the same time, and I was looking through her book and saw this image, Compass, and SCW, and immediately I was like, that's it, man. That totally sums up my work, because it is mm-hmm. all over the place. and uh, Logistically and style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's going to be out in April, and I look forward to hitting the road I might, yeah, go on tour for a while. Oh, cool. Yeah. And show hey, do, uh, less pee-smelling places this time? or No. no. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I love this country for a reason. It's so big and... And that's a, fu- that's a funny thing about Cascadia, <clears throat> like the whole... Like, if if that area seceded, seceded, it would still be the fucking biggest country on the earth. There's so many different places. There's so many different types of people. And the idea that we're all going to get along is really kind of absurd. Yeah. This country is too big, man. It's way too big, I think. You know, when people vote, people... The people I know that, that like, I don't want to vote for the lesser evil. It's like, dude, you got to vote for the lesser evil. This is where we're at right now. Yeah. But... Anyway, um, did you how did you see a lot of areas by hitchhiking? Because you hitchhiked for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Did I, you find that like a better way to see places, or how was it? Um, it was all. Uh, I only had a few sketchy incidents, incidences, but they were like nothing horrible. And uh, mm-hmm. I what what years were that? That was in the early eighties. But I hitchhiked last year. This this today. <laughs> I woke up this morning actually thinking last year at 8 a.m. I was hitchhiking from Astoria back to Portland. Oh, wow. And I'm coming down to San Francisco to do a show at Other Cinema end of May and mm-hmm. uh, with the musicians for Charismatic Megafauna, and we were trying to figure out who's going, how, what, and I was thinking maybe I'll just hitchhike down. It's an easy hitch. I love hitchhiking. I really like uh, just being exposed to different – whoever picks you up, like it's usually somebody I would not – be normally talking to right it's weird a lot of it is men who are like petrified that you're going to be raped and they're just like you shouldn't be out there and they're like super protective (laughs) men it's very strange and they're just like giving you shit like how you shouldn't be out there and it's like (laughs) just shut up and get me to that place i'm going 
<laughs> I, yeah, I, and I did it initially out of, I didn't know how to drive and I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, and I had this dog with me and I wasn't going to ride a bike with it. And, uh, it just seemed like, yeah, an easy way to go. I didn't want to ride trains at all. Cause I read some, I don't know, Jack Kerouac or something talking about how cold and shaky it was. I was like, that doesn't sound good to me. Right. And so <laughs> I just got into sticking out my thumb and, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, like always within five minutes I'll have a ride I it's just like amazing how wow you just gotta smile get the smile on don't look yeah and do you think that's even today yeah yeah oh wow definitely because like yeah last year when I hitched back I had three rides and the last one took me right to my door and uh and they were all like boom 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 just What's really weird, this was a weird thing that happened. I was hitchhiking. Actually, Bill Bill and I were going to go back to Portland, and the transmission broke in the van and I, I in San Francisco. And I was like, i got to get back. So I went to hitch, and I got five rides, and it was in 10 hours, which would have been faster than, than the van we were in getting home. Mm-hmm. But one of the... One of the rides i got it was so it was pretty weird the the uh you're not gonna believe this the car the car i was in stopped on the edge of the highway like didn't even get off the on-ramp to let me off right and then and then before i even got out of the car this pickup truck stopped in front of it and the license plate said lone wolf on it and the guy was like, do you want to ride? And then he didn't talk to me the whole way that he drove me. How many, it was like pretty how crazy. Long? He, he probably drove me like probably three hours, I think. Wow. And not one word. Not one word, yeah. I was once in Texas with a truck on Highway 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the truck driver wasn't talkative. And, uh, and if you can believe, I, I used to not be talkative either. <laughs> Pals, Pals changed my personality and I became way more outgoing and talkative but um, <laughs> we saw this guy lying face down on the side of the road like in the middle of fucking nowhere in, in West Texas and we just looked at each other and uh, and he didn't say anything and I didn't say anything and we kept driving and on the CB like for up to like two hours later we'd hear people talking about guy on the side of the road nobody was stopping to see if he was dead or alive wow. that was pretty weird too yeah but I've had, yeah, really, like, I have f- people that I'm still mm-hmm. in touch with, friends that I met from hitchhiking. Oh, wow. And uh, I, like, I like it because I do, I, I am in this rut of, like, going to the same places and hanging out with the same people, and it really just puts mm-hmm. you in, like, 100% trust mode and being really open and just experiencing some people that I would not experience and you get such a wide cross section of people, like yeah. the treasurer of Wyoming picked me up, and just like weird <laughs> people pick you up. I mean, not weird; they're not weird. But and was it mostly dudes or women as well? Mostly men picked me up. The first, the first ride I got, I remember I read some book like before, like mm-hmm. if you're a woman traveling alone, never get into the back seat of a two door car, and never get into a car with more than one man. And sure. my sister dropped me off somewhere in Wyoming. And uh, and I set up my tent, and I woke up in the morning. It was the 4th of July, and I started hitchhiking like at 7 in the morning, and this car stopped, and there were seven roughnecks in it that had just got off work, and I piled in the car, and I like began. I was like, <laughs> fuck all those rules. <laughs> what, like they were oil workers or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah and they took me to a bar, and uh, they were playing pool, <laughs> and then I, 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 I was like, I, I got to keep going and got the next ride. Wow. Have you found one state to be nicer than another? 
I think definitely the West. Uh, I've never hitchhiked east of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter went hitchhiking and uh, Craigslist carpooling across the country two or three years ago. And it was funny because uh-huh. she called me up and, and she was like, twice she called me. And once she was like, nobody, the cops, the cops won't let me hitchhike. What do I do? And I was on my computer and I was like, where are you? And then I was like, oh, there's a town seven miles north of you. Just walk through the town and then there's going to be different cops and you're going to be okay. And then the next day she called me and she was uh-huh. like, nobody is picking me up. And I'm like, where are you? And she's like, well, I'm up on the on-ramp and... Um, and I'm like, well, are there cars? Nobody's coming on on this on-ramp. And I'm like, are there cars on the freeway? And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, well, why aren't you down on the freeway then? And she was like, because there's that sign that says, you know, no pedestrians pass this point. And I'm like, well, where are you? And she said, Vermont. And I said, Vermont, get down on the goddamn freeway. <laughs> where I think I'd hitchhike in Vermont, but right. I never wanted to hitchhike really. I hitchhiked in Illinois. Uh-huh. I remember this cop stopped, and he was like, why is your hair black? And I'm like... My hair's not black, first off. It's just dark brown. But, like, what the fuck does it matter what color my hair is? <laughs> We're out here. I think it's more, I don't know, just like Wild West. Like, yeah. Um, I feel safer hitchhiking, I think, east of, west of Chicago. Hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And as a mom, you were not scared for your daughter? No, not at all. Oh, well. Not at all. No. Yeah, just over the cliche. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to, yeah, she's going to go do it. Maybe she was inspired by some of how I lived my life, but um, who am I to say? Like, that would be like, oh, no, I never smoked a pot or I never hitchhiked. It's like, what stupid bullshit. I went to school every day. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. not hang out at the zoo. Yeah. I was so. happy. It was funny. I was, like, so different. Like, to have a cell phone when you're hitchhiking, I didn't, you know, none of that existed. And sure. to be able to call your mother <laughs> and ask for advice. Well, at the very least, Google Maps on it. Well, I guess a smartphone, but. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but I don't even, us. I don't have a cell phone now. I just got my thumb and a smile. Right. <laughs> it's a good place to end it. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I was a teenage werewolf Races on my veins I was a teenage werewolf And no one even said the thanks And no one made me stop I had a teen landmine Got it?